0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Community Nursing Services of Logan, offering home health care, hospice, and palliative care throughout Cache Valley. Located at 221 North Gateway Drive, Suite G in Logan. More information at cnscares.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.
1: Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah today. Uh, today is a part of our favorite books series. We celebrate the 100th anniversary of the publication of Willa Cather's My Antonia. My guests include Cather scholars and USU professors Evelyn Fonda and Steve Shively. Evelyn Fonda says My Antonia is fresh and contemporary, raises issues about immigration, assimilation, class, and female power that resonate today. And as uh, we go along, we'll also talk about Evelyn Funda's mother, also named Antonia, or Evelyn Funda Antonia. I think she Mm -hmm. insisted that she be called, who escaped her native Czechoslovakia in 1955 uh, as the uh, communist Iron Curtain uh, closed in. So we welcome in uh, Evelyn Funda who is uh, also associate dean at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Thank you. Good morning. We welcome uh, back to the program Steve Shively, uh, who is a professor of English at USU. Thanks Happy to me. be here, Tom. Uh, so uh, tell us, uh, start with Steve Shively. Tell us uh, just a little bit about uh, Willa Cather. For the, I think we're all somewhat familiar um, with some, some thumbnails. Give us a, a brief synopsis overview of Willa Cather.
2: Sure. Uh, the The
1: quick story is uh, she was
2: uh, not born in Nebraska, which is where people associate her most. She was born in Virginia to a reasonably wealthy uh, family, lived in what many of us would call a, a mansion, and at the age of nine, was uprooted when her family moved to the plains of Nebraska. Uh, Much different environment uh, in in so many ways. Had a year out on the prairie at the farm, and then her family moved into the town of Red Cloud, which at that time was a town of about 1,500 people, had a railroad and kind of a lot of activity, but was still a small town. She was educated at the University of Nebraska, went then to Pittsburgh and ultimately New York, where she was. Uh, uh, an editor, magazine uh, publisher, uh, actually a very prominent uh, person in the world of, of a magazine publishing, uh, but eventually became a full-time writer, is best known for her books about the pioneer, uh, experience in, in Nebraska, but she's much bigger than that. She also wrote Death Comes for the Archbishop, for example, about the American Southwest, Shadows on the Rock, about medieval Quebec, um, One of Ours, a World War One novel, uh, wide ranging. She was much, uh, it took a while, but she was much honored and her books sold in, uh, her lifetime and her reputation has continued, if anything, has been transformed into, uh, a reputation as one of the premier literary artists of the 20th century
1: i was just reading through uh modern libraries top 100 they have some 100 lists top 100 uh, novels and I, i saw death comes from the archbishop on on that list
2: yes yes absolutely um there were various surveys done it's been now almost 20 years ago but at the turn of the century about what were the greatest whatever's of the 20th century and her books um regularly appeared on at least ahead of works by people like Hemingway and Steinbeck who at the time they lived were probably much more prominent Mm -hmm. but she has proved to have more lasting uh,
1: presence. Evelyn Fund I wonder if you would uh, situate for us uh, Cather in American literature.
3: Yeah I mean I think that um, Cather's My Antonia and and also her 1913 novel um, O Pioneers which are both set in Nebraska um, in particular are really important watershed moments in American literary history because prior to that, American literary history was all in love with uh, Henry James and the parlor and, um, you know, this idea of realism and, you know, not much happens except between conversations and certainly nothing happens outside. And Cather comes along in 1913 with O Pioneers, and then in 1918 with this book, and really says um, the land is important. Nebraska is an important landscape for literature. It doesn't have to all be about the East Coast. It can actually be about some places inauspicious as Nebraska. And thirdly, it can be about people who have never been in American literary history before, and that's immigrants. Um, the, the immigrants who had been coming, um, in particular, remember that 1907 is the height of the immigration. So we get all this European immigration in 1907. So just a decade before this novel, um, we've got this huge influx of, of immigrants.
1: Mm. Uh, let me. I want to return to that. This idea of immigration. This this makes it, this is one of the reasons why this novel, hundred years later, still resonates, right? Yeah. Um, Steve Shively, tell us about the real Antonia. There, there was uh, Cather pretty clearly based this on a on a real person. Absolutely. Um, the real Antonia was a woman named
2: Anna Pavelka. That was her later married name. She was Anna Sadalek originally as, as an immigrant. She indeed immigrated with her family. She was about 15 years old at the time. And uh, as happened with many immigrants, uh, there was considerable discrimination. They were taken advantage of by the banking community, for example. Um, uh, there was religious conflict, there were churches that would not, did not um, um, welcome them, uh, neighbors, uh, and, and the the real life issues that many immigrants faced then and still face today, but the – and the real um, – Antonia, the real Anna Pavelka, was also very much a survivor. Her spirit, her enthusiasm, um, helped her survive through any number of trauma. A child out of wedlock, um, great poverty, uh, ultimately married, had a large family, stayed there on the farm, and uh, was was uh, not just a survivor, but thrived in, in her way. Many of her descendants are still alive, Particularly in Nebraska is where I know them, but but all over you don't have eleven children and not have a lot of descendants. Mm-hmm. Um, so she very much was a real woman uh, who had impact on her own family and community. bought her heritage in a has, continues in a, in a larger way, and it is very much that immigrant story mm-hmm. um, of transformation and becoming, uh, hanging on to certain things, going through certain trials and emerging in a different way.
1: Also a pioneer story, and there's other themes, uh, uh, women's issues and others that we'll get to. get to. But I want to treat this uh, issue of immigration. And, uh, Evelyn Fundy, you've studied immigration specifically as, as it relates to?
3: Yes, yeah, specifically as it relates to Bohemians yeah. or, or people from what is now the Czech Republic or the Czech lands. Um, Remember that during this time period that we're talking about, Bohemians were often referred to colloquially as bohunks, which is the, this conflation of, of Bohemian and Hungarian sometimes. But that was really an insult. And it was very much this idea of it brought up this sense that they were big, hulking people who were sort of stupid. Well, the reality is is that Czech immigrants were one of the most literate immigrants during this this era um, way at the top so that's completely blown out of the water Um, but also there's all kinds of prejudice i mean steve mentioned the religious prejudice bohemian immigrants tended to have sort of a double whammy in terms of prejudice when it came to religious issues because they were coming from a catholic country Um, and so they were not Protestant, so there's number one. And secondly, when they arrived, they left the church and became Bohemian Freethinkers to a huge rate. And so there was always this fear that they were anarchists. You know, in, in census records, they would be asked, are you an anarchist? Or, you know, is this person an anarchist? Um, because they were trying to make sure that they weren't. Well, if you're a free thinker, in other words, if you question the existence of God or whatever, then it's not a far leap in the minds of the public to go from that to, oh, this must be an anarchist. So there was a huge suspicion about Bohemian immigrants during this time period.
1: I, I, I can't help but mention, <laughs> although it's political, um, resonances with today.
3: That's exactly right. And, you know, I think to Steve's point is that's exactly why we feel this is such a relevant novel and remains so important in our, in our own time period. It seems to just keep having echoes to what's ever going on in the in the present mm-hmm. world
2: we haven't mentioned language but there are several references in the book to both the the need to learn english the difficulties of doing that and a dis and your own comfort with with your own language. and and language is an issue that threads throughout antonia's life yeah uh, and that is an issue that immigrants today often um face as well and then prejudice if you um speak your native language
1: uh, there's uh, even the food in the yeah. presentation last <laughs> night you, uh, you two talked about foodways and and how that can be a, a, a kind of dividing issue between immigrants and and, uh, and natives
3: yeah there's a there's a wonderful passage in the novel where um the the narrator jim burden goes into uh the first winter that he goes into the the home where they're living and they're living in a dugout and it's it's discussed as a cave this dark cold cave and then the girls are sleeping in a cave within a cave and it's very unwelcoming and and I mean it's a clear sort of indication of their poverty and before the narrator and his grandmother leave um, Pavelka's or Mrs. Annie Schmirda's mother brings out this bag of mushrooms and she puts them in a bag and sends them off as as her sort of parting gift to Mrs. Schmerda or Mrs. Burden and um, Mrs. Burden's never seen mushrooms before she didn't know what dried mushrooms were and she talks about this this must be some sort of beast food and this I'm very suspicious of this and she ends up throwing the mushrooms away and and dismisses them and is really sort of suspicious of them and the thing that that always strikes me about that passage is that response is the response of the American public to these immigrants. It's, it's very much the same sort of response. You're suspicious of it. It's dangerous. It's somehow unhuman.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that could be a division. Yes, yes. I think that there was another example that uh, I think one of you gave at the presentation of, uh, of uh, the opposite, that in the book, there's there's maybe a positive example of foodways uh, uniting or or the natives. Absolutely,
2: at the end of the book, um, and the scene is also set in a cave. Mm-hmm. So, Cather's literary um, skills uh, 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 resonate here. Uh, the 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 Pavelka family at the end of the novel, uh, they're called Kuzaks at that time. The Kuzak family, they have a fruit cave. And the children, and it's a full of life scene, even though it occurs down in a cave and there are plum preserves there. And they are uh, an important ingredient in the Czech pastry kolache and Evelyn happens to be a great kolache baker herself, <laughs> and there are others around, but these calache are uh, a treat, a treasure, and yet they're also very much still an immigrant sign, and and that's not uncommon with how we treat. Uh, Im- if we like something, then we accept it. If we are suspicious of it, then we don't, rather than try and learn about it, for example, which would be perhaps be a better approach to immigrant food And,
3: and i think that that scene that steve's referring to is is a transformative scene we've got the cave we've got the cave within the cave at the beginning but now we've got a cave where they are um keeping all their preserves watermelon pickles and you know all kinds of preserves including these sorts of things it's this place of life it's a place of abundance it's a place of sweetness and sugar and and um fond memories and then the, the scene ends as the children come bursting out of this darkness into the sunlight and it's this transcendent moment so so this is a family who's moved from that dark frightening cave to a cave where there's no denial of life and continuation
1: mm. Let's, yeah, it,
2: it's also a very authentic thing. It's very literary, as we've been talking mm-hmm. about. But you can go to mm-hmm. Webster County, Nebraska today and see the hillside where that dugout was in the early scenes. And you can go to the farmstead at the end of the novel and see the real fruit seller. So th- it's very authentic. And this is typical for Cather. Her work is very grounded in what is real and authentic, yet her literary artistry makes it, transforms it into something much more powerful.
1: Mm. Another thing before we go to break that I learned at the presentation, uh, you can go to the Red Cloud, Nebraska Cemetery and see the uh, the gravestone for Jim Burden.
2: Uh, that's correct, even though uh, Cather just borrowed his name right. for her novel. So it's that's not, not, the, that's not the real from Jim, Jim Burden. The novel. Okay. But you can go to a nearby cemetery and see the grave of my Antonia.
1: Uh, the, the real yes, to uh, Anna Pavelka. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk more about her. We want to talk about, um, Eva LaFunda, you you have Czech heritage. I do. A right? connection to the novel.
3: Um, yes. Well, my father was bo- uh, from a Bohemian family, but my mother was from a Moravian family. Um, my mother actually was named Antonia Antonia, um, Cather was very specific that it be Antonia, but in in truth, it depended on regional sorts of characteristics. My mother was Antonia; she was a Czech immigrant. She actually immigrated in 1951. Mm. Um, she immigrated to the U.S. in 55, okay. and she um, we had a fruit cave, and she baked kolaches. <laughs> so, to my mind, when I first read this novel, it was echoes of home.
1: Yeah. When we come back on here. Your Mother's Story. We've told this a couple of times on our air, but there are people who haven't heard it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pulse-pounding. And I want to hear more about the, the real Antonia Anna Favelka, and we'll dive into the novel, have you read a couple of passages as well. We're talking about Willa Cather's My Antonia. It's uh, 100 years since the, uh, the publication, uh, and we're uh, celebrating the novel as part of our series, Our Favorite Books, also as a part of our Pulitzer uh, series. We have with us Cather scholars and USU professors Evelyn Fonda and Steve Shively. More following this break.
2: Oakley Yoder was nine years old on a climbing trip last summer.
0: I felt something like grab onto my foot.
2: A snake. Waiting for help, camp counselors calmed her with gushers and Taylor Swift.
0: We listened to it like at least 20 times.
2: She also got four vials of life-saving antivenom. Why it cost more than $60,000. Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: That's this afternoon from 3 to 6.30 here on Utah Public Radio.
3: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's the musical diversity of Spain. From the acoustic pop of Madrid to the flamenco-inspired mestizo music of Barcelona. Bien que lo I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for España, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.
1: It's been 100 years now since the publication of Willa Cather's My Antonia. And we're uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary on the program uh, today with uh, Cather Scholars and USU Professors Evelyn Fonda and Steve Shively. Uh, Before we jump into uh, the rest of the conversation, um, I I neglected to follow up. Um, I was going to ask, Death Comes for the Archbishop, on that Modern Library 100 Best list, what's your opinion, Cather Scholars? Uh, Would would you prefer Maia to be a representative of Cather on that list? Uh,
2: I would, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, there are a couple of other Cather novels I'd probably put ahead of Death Comes for the Archbishop. It's a wonderful story, but it is fraught with um, Cather, some of Cather's own um, misunderstandings, perhaps prejudices about Native people, um, about immigrant people, um, about the church, and uh, those sometimes become confusing mm-hmm. uh, and, and hard to read.
1: Ellen Funda, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I I would agree um, for a slightly different reason, and that is death comes of the archbishop. She was really experimenting with form. And so in that novel, she tries to constantly sort of undercut the idea of resolution. And so she'll tell a story, and you'll think, oh, it's going to resolve, and then she just drops the story, and then she moves on to the next story. And there's sort of this pattern of doing this over and over again. It's innovative, but it's not very satisfying as a reader. Mm. So it's not one that I care for. Um, certainly, my Antonia, I mean, I'm prejudiced for that one. But another one I think is an amazing book is The Professor's House. I mean, I just think that that is an incredible book that's also set in the Southwest and in some ways gets right what Steve is questioning, whether she gets right in Death Comes to the Archbishop, I think.
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, Cather won the Pulitzer
3: Right? She did. For, for her
1: next book after Yes, Antonia, so, the, right?
3: so the novel after My Antonia is the 1922 novel, One of Ours, um, which wins the Pulitzer in 1923. Um, but it's a war novel. So it's set in the, the years of the – the year leading up to the war and the years of the war. Um, the main character – hate to spoil it for you – the main character dies. Uh, he is a, a young farm boy who has – Try, has been trying to look for something splendid in life. That's a quote from Cather something splendid. He's desperate to find something splendid and he's not finding it in Nebraska in the farm fields and instead goes off to war in 1917 um, and of course dies for a great cause. Now, this again is Cather's pattern. She bases that novel on her cousin, G.P. Cather, um, who dies in one of the first offensives in the war.
1: Hmm. this young man's looking for meaning he right? is absolutely it's, it's, looking and leaving for meaning. home to do it right a very a yes. uh, universal yes theme yeah uh tell us um tell us about your mother you you have <laughs> uh, by the way uh, preceding this this czech heritage heritage you uh you uh, bake kolaches, right? And uh, I do. And you, you told not us that there's not kolaches, last no. night's kolaches, uh, <laughs> which uh, I think we could reveal reveal this um, that not too commercial that uh, the owners now of uh,
3: Crum Brothers, Crum Brothers
1: uh, uh, an iconic bakery in in Logan, right. have Slovakian.
3: Yes, heritage. they're they're Slovaks, and a friend of mine, um, Lubo Tursnik, and so I went to her and said, I don't have time to bake kolaches for this. Um, Could you do it? And it's not something that they normally, they don't have those in the bakery, although I keep telling her they need to have them. But she did me a favor and um, baked the kolaches for last night.
1: You, you also uh, told us that uh, the Czech people are championship mushroomers. Or they or, are. Whatever the term is. So. It is
3: a national pastime in the, in the Czech Republic to today um, and ho- always has been, and w- which is a, another thing that I think is so great about how Cather uh, treats that, that scene is, I think that's a demonstration of her deep understanding of the culture mm-hmm. is knowing how important that is to um, the Czech people.
1: So uh, tell us about your mother. This is a pulse-pounding story.
3: <laughs> well, and, and you know, not just the fact that she baked kolaches and her name was Antonia, um, but I think that it, it corresponds because she was very much a survivor like Annie Pavelka was. Um, she was the 10th child of people, of uh, Moravians, who lived near the Austrian border in, in sou- southern Moravia, and um, grew up, of course, during the Nazi... Con- period and then sort of came of age as the communists were taking over so in 1948 or earlier than 48 um, 45 I think she becomes a nanny for journalists a journalist there and does this he and his family and does this without knowing that he's actually a dissident and when the communists take over he is helping people escape into Vienna, into Austria um, because they're so close to the border she doesn't know this as she takes on the job but as she takes on the job she discovers this and becomes a part of their work Um, I mean not doing great you know huge things but one of the things that she does for instance is at one point she's a decoy she goes into a church changes clothes with the woman who's escaping and and leaves and essentially the people follow her instead of the woman Um, So she actually escapes in 1951 because she finds out that she's about to be arrested by the secret police and escapes by being in the bottom, a false bottom of a huge wine barrel and is taken across the border into Austria. And then um, by this time, her, her boss is working for Radio Free Europe and he helps get her uh, make these arrangements, and also has armed guards that take them through the communist area, and ultimately she ends up in Munich and helping work for Radio Free Europe at the time. Wow,
1: amazing! In the in the false bottom of a wine, <laughs> wine yes. barrel. Yes. Uh, then she ends up in the uh, the American West.
3: She she does. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: And you, you you recount some of this in in your book uh, Weeds: A Farm Dollar's Lament. I do uh, some issues of pioneer families, right? Farm families.
3: Yes, very much. So um, my father's uh, family came and homesteaded was the word that they used, although that was a a lie. But anyway, homesteaded in southern Idaho and then moved to Gem County, where I was born. Um, So that's my father's family. Meanwhile, my mother comes to the U.S. in 55. She works in New York City for a while. The people that she's working with um, have a correspondence with my grandfather in Emmett, Idaho, and through that correspondence, she begins corresponding with my father, and eventually he invites her to come live in Idaho, mm. and they marry.
0: Hmm.
1: I want to turn back to Steve Shively and talk about the the, the real Antonia Anna Pavelka, right? Um, you you have. Uh, young picture of her you have an old one she's in her 90s i think she's she looks indomitable she looks like a survivor it's still a sparkle in her eye right um t- tell us uh, some of the things she had to overcome absolutely
2: um and and a good transition from the story of evelyn's mother i'll mention that um the real antonia anna pavelka uh appeared uh, had a, a, an interview in a session on radio Free europe Uh, So that's a neat uh, Ah, real uh, thing. In in both instances, they're real. The real Anna Pavelka... Um, and and she didn't live into her nineties, but although uh, she had a hard life, and it's easy to look at those pictures and and believe that she did, but we have pictures of her from her as a young girl uh, at about age sixteen, on through her marriage, uh, her increasingly large family, and then she she achieved some fame uh with the publication of this novel. Some people, her, her some members of her family were originally kind of reluctant um to acknowledge this novel because they felt that their family secrets had been um, discovered and exposed but anna pavelka herself never seems to have had that attitude and seems to have been proud uh my story matters and um i'm happy about this Mm -hmm. and her family uh came to embrace the story um her husband uh at one time was admitted to the hospital and they had a, he had to fill out the form, and they asked him who he was, and he said, "I am my Antonia's husband, <laughs> and her mm. uh, descendants. Uh, I know uh, two of her grandchildren who are still living. One is a woman who's ninety-seven uh, and still lives uh, just a few miles from the family farm.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, Anna Pavelka, she overcame uh, a. Uh, birth out of wedlock yes she um as was
2: common became uh went to town to be a hired girl uh even though she did very hard work out on the farm in many ways my antonia Um, claims that woman's role in farming, which isn't told in very much literature. uh, But despite that, she was more valuable as a hired girl in town and could make more money and give it back to um, the family out on the farm. So she did that. And we Yes she she thought she was she uh, was going to marry a railroad conductor and he had gone on to Denver to create the uh, a home for them. she He, he sent for her, she went. Uh, prepared to to be married and, and live this life. And uh, he uh, took advantage of her and sent her packing after a couple of weeks. But she was pregnant at that time. Mm. Uh, returned to the farm, small town, had a child out of wedlock. We know there were other Um, issues. Um, We know now that she was also raped in that town and had a child uh, and had the courage to bring a lawsuit uh, Mm. against the wealthy young man in town who was responsible. So she had many sadnesses like that in her life. We haven't mentioned one of the most powerful scenes in the novel is that very first winter when the family is in town. Her father, who Evelyn uh, mentioned earlier how many of these Czech immigrants were not your typical immigrants. Her father was a highly cultured man. He'd been part of orchestras in Prague and was an urban city um, cultured man. And he found this life out on the prairie of Nebraska, the isolation, the winter, to be impossible. Mm. And he um, commits suicide. That really happened to the real Anna Pavelkas father so many incidences of distress and and unhappiness not all caused by prejudice against them but that compounded uh, those those realities
1: yeah
3: And, and one thing i want to add um the story that steve just mentioned about the new discovery of of annie pavelka's rape to me that demonstrates that that this is a novel that still has a story to give there are still things to discover about that. That was just recently discovered. It hasn't even been published yet. Steve is revealing something that, you know, this is brand new to those yeah. of us in Cather Studies.
1: Well, so a new scholarship, yeah. New, Absolutely. New, people new say, out. what what new is there to be mm-hmm. said
2: about a novel 100 years old? Yeah. Um, Evelyn and I both went to the University of Nebraska and wrote doctoral dissertations on Willa Cather. And I know I had people say, Is there really anything new to say about her? And absolutely, we keep uncovering new information and. New scholars come up with new mm-hmm. perspectives, mm-hmm. and it's a very. Re- I was fortunate to go to a conference on Willa Cather in Northern Ireland yeah. this last summer. Next summer, there will be one in Virginia, and it's a very rich, scholarly community of new discoveries. But that 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 notion. Uh, there's also at the end of the novel, there is a murder suicide. Mm-hmm. A man um, murders his wife and then himself, and he has abused her. All his life and he has been responsible for raping many of these hired women and that kind of violence um, that kind of um, Cather was aware of the woman's perspective Mm. in those kinds of things in ways that weren't common back then but are increasingly common today and relevant and important for us to to acknowledge the heritage and the long-standing ways that these things happen
1: we have a couple of comments i want to get these in and uh, this one i think is would be quite apropos right now um, this is a comment from uh, Jennifer in Vernal uh, called in, didn't want to comment on the air, but she said uh, she's noticed a pattern that female writers will express their own prejudices in their work as they try to work through the oppression they face. She says she appreciates the flaws, and uh, that is these writers explore their own oppression. They have to ask the question, uh, how am I oppressing others? Uh, mentions uh, She mentioned Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind as, as an example. Uh, what, what do you think? of female writers working through the oppression that they face in their lives and my first thought is yes
2: um, that's a big part of what literature does those out there who who write uh, who keep diaries who write their own poetry memoirs and stories are working through the issues of their lives so that's absolutely true I don't know that that's unique to women I think of uh, someone like Hemingway who in many ways was was much damaged um, as a man, uh, both by war, uh, by issues of sex, uh, family, um, not poverty in his case, but in many other ways. And his writing is very much working out those things. Or read uh, a work like Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck and working out the socioeconomic discrimination that certain classes of men faced. So I think that's exactly what literature often does Mm -hmm. sometimes in ways that are helpful and inspiring and speak to us and resonate over the generations other times in ways that are a flash in the pan Mm -hmm. and ultimately are exposed as not particularly authentic or helpful
1: Hmm. what would you say about about this
3: yeah i mean i think that that is true particularly of writers of that time period they're all working out their demons Um, and Cather is not unique in that. I think she is unique in the fact that she is bringing voices that have never been heard in American literature mm-hmm. um, into the conversation. And that, to me, is just um, precious, I guess, is the is the word that I'm yeah. thinking of.
2: might also be worth mentioning, Cather herself is not Anna Pavelka cather is not an immigrant she did not face those kinds of discrimination um we don't know whether she was sexually violated as a young woman um but we do know that she was in at at some level uh, of socioeconomic privilege of um being uh wealthy uh, or, or comfortable at least, educated, uh, had opportunities that Anna Pavelka did not have. Mm-hmm. So she's also, um, in many ways, able to put herself in someone else's uh, place and really understand that person uh, in ways that are seem to us, many people, to be helpful uh, and illuminating and inspiring rather than just – Expressing the problems that you have faced,
1: mm-hmm. uh, Evelyn Funda, um, Cather made an interesting choice. Uh, she's essentially Jim Burton, right? That's a, there's. Uh, that, uh, can we say that? And but she chose to uh, chose to have the, this man narrate, uh, and uh, and not a female.
3: Well, uh, and the novel actually the the preface to the novel is a character who is a writer that we all always assume is Cather, who is. Um, friends with Jim Burden who then hands her his manuscripts which narrates the story of Annie mm. Pavelka so Annie or Annie Schmerda um, who was a mutual friend of theirs so that's how the novel is set up so we've got Jim Burden as the actual narrator of the novel instead of Cather herself even though it's based on Cather's experience with mm. Annie Pavelka yeah and I think that that's interesting because what that does is that introduces into this um, narrated world, possibilities of that are really fraught with all kinds of things. Um, Sexual tension, the idea of class issues. Jim Burden is more middle class. And so then the question becomes, is someone who is middle class, can they be um, admiring? Can they be friends with someone who is of Annie Schmerda's class? Um, the, and also the combination of the potential for romance, although Cather never fulfills that. She doesn't, you know, I've had students who often say, um, I wanted Annie Pavelka and, and Jim Burden. I wanted Annie Schmerda and Jim Burden to marry. No, C- Cather was absolutely trying to avoid that. She she's explicitly said in an, a Saturday, um, Saturday Evening Post, Evening Post article, uh, that she was trying to uh, no it was it was about Saturday evening Post. she said I was trying to avoid the Saturday evening Post ending. She did not want that um, so there's that tension of this this man who becomes a railroad railroad lawyer uh, as our narrator narrating someone's um, experience that is a bohemian immigrant.
2: Mm. Cather once said uh, rather famously that she wanted her new novel to be um, like looking at a fine vase on a table and that you could walk around and look at it from every perspective. And she knew that her perspective as Willa Cather would come through, but she also wanted through her imagination and understanding and wisdom to give other perspectives. Mm. And that helps explain the, the Jim Burden yeah. voice.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps the longevity, that, that skill, literary skill yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's an email talking about Willa Cather's Myotonia 100 years after the f- publication in 1918. Uh, here's Steve. Steve says, Wow, great program this morning. You're filling in gaping uh, a gaping hole in at least one listener's literary knowledge. How did I miss Willa Cather in general and Myotonia in particular before this morning? Is it perhaps a matter of timing? Was she not taught in high school and uh, college in the 60s and 70s when I was a high school student, a college undergrad? Uh, She really should have been in the curriculum. That's uh, Steve.
2: Cather uh, rather famously maintained a lot of control over the artistic integrity of her books, and one consequence of that was that her books were not available in paperback editions for a long time. Well after her own death, uh, her estate continued that practice, which means they often did not make college courses and high school courses. Mm. Um, But uh they've also never been lost, never gone out of character uh, or, or, or a place I, I can report that Logan High School uh, is a, a class English classes reading my Antonia this year. Mm. Uh,
3: but I would also say that Cather herself was very suspicious of the kind of work yes. that Steve and I do. Mm. Um, she very specifically said that she hoped that her books would never be assigned reading. She wanted her readers to come organically to her work. And she called professors at one point in in uh, an interesting line here. She called them information vampires.
1: Mm, interesting. Uh,
3: she,
2: she also was a, a bit of a victim of some of the, the discriminations of American culture. Uh, male writers um, got a lot more attention from critics uh, and their reputations were as big important cultural figures, Hemingway Steinbeck, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, people like that, and women um, found it much harder to break into that kind of public cultural recognition.
1: Mm. Let's, uh, let's take another break, and uh, when we come back, I uh, want to, I've uh, been neglecting uh, having uh, each of you read some passages. Let's, let's read uh, two or three passages and uh, talk about it. We're talking about My Antonia of Willa Cather, 100 years after the publication as part of our favorite book series and parts of our Pulitzer series. More following this break.
0: In New York City, where I live, a short walk to the corner store is often a journey through sounds from many different cultures. New York native Jesse Montgomery captures that soundscape in a piece called Coincident Dances. We'll hear it on the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. On the next On Being,
1: citizen physician Atul Gawande, on the ancient and evolving human question of death and what it has to do with life.
0: What I realized is we were not really talking
1: about death. We were really talking about how do you live a good life all the way to the very end.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sundays at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment uh, as part of our favorite book series and our Pulitzer series. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of Willa Cather's My Antonia. And we're talking with Cather scholars and USU professors Evelyn Funda and Steve Shively. Uh, Steve Shively, before I have you read a passage or two here, um, I want to, you mention a conference in Northern Ireland. Yes. Uh, how is Cather received worldwide? Uh, she is one of those writers who is studied
2: and reaches people worldwide. Uh, Northern Ireland happens to be the heritage home of the Cather family. So that was a reason to study it, but also a site of um, religious conflict, of the importance of immigration, uh, of, of cultural identity, all kinds of things like that. And we had uh, a number of speakers from Ireland, but also Czechoslovakia, Germany, um, Spain, uh, and internationally Cather is important. There have been... Um, Essays on Cather, the teaching of Cather in France, in China, in Brazil, uh, around the world.
1: Hmm. Let me have you read a, a passage. Uh, this is. Uh, uh, I guess for shorthand, I'm calling it In the Garden. Set this up and read this first.
2: Sure. This is one of my favorite passages. It's early in the novel. The young narrator, Jim Burden, is a nine-year-old boy, newly arrived in this strange place in Nebraska. And like many young children, he's a little bit scared of things like rattlesnakes and a little bit curious about things like big giant pumpkins. And that's how the passage begins. And then he quickly becomes uh, kind of strangely philosophical. I sat down in the middle of the garden, where snakes could scarcely approach, unseen, and leaned my back against a warm yellow pumpkin. I was something that lay under the sun and felt it, like the pumpkins, and I did not want to be anything more. I was entirely happy. Perhaps we feel like that when we die and become a part of something entire, whether it is sun and air or goodness and knowledge. At any rate, that is happiness to be dissolved into something complete and great. When it comes to one, it comes as naturally as sleep. And I love that that phrase, that is happiness to be dissolved into something complete and great. It happens to be on Willa Cather's tombstone. But Mm -hmm. that notion of being dissolved into something is in many ways the opposite of the usual story of the settling of the West and in many ways the usual story of what being an American means, Um, leaving your mark on the land, leaving something to be remembered by. This is the opposite of the Mount Rushmore approach to uh, how to live life and frankly in many ways it's the opposite of the Donald Trump approach Mm -hmm. to how to live life and to, to make your mark on the world. But to dissolve yourself Mm. and to become part of something larger, whether that something is a community, which this book is very much about family and community, or whether it's to become a part of the land and your environment and the place where you are. Uh, So it connects to the environmental movement. People should become part of rather than destroy. It's also part of the it's relevant to immigration. What do we ask immigrants to do? Are we asking them to give up and change or to become part of something bigger and better? It's also very much part of how women are treated. Mm-hmm. And is it men who leave their mark or can women have that role as well?
1: Ellen Funda, that's, uh, as, as Steve Schiave has been pointing out, a lot of different resonances for this idea of dissolving, right?
3: Yeah, and, and it has it has lots of resonance to the question of assimilation at this time. Um, you know, the idea of dissolving into something complete and great. Immigrants during this time were asked to dissolve their identities. And that was something that really irked Cather. Um, she talks about in an essay, when she talks about Bohemians, um, about how they had contributed to the democracy of the world, you know, that they had tr- contributed to our country in profound ways that um she felt was not being adequately recognized.
1: Hmm. And before we end, I want to uh, kind of get the rest of the story. We referenced it with Anna Pavelka. So Steve Shively, uh, she's you've revealed that she's been raped and had this, uh, this child who, who then died, right? Yes. Uh, child out of wedlock um, which who she proudly raised and yes. d- d- did not hide in the back room. Um, then uh, met a fellow, married and had how many Children?
2: Uh, 11 surviving children, uh, 10 with the the, the one uh, prior. Uh, They did have three children that did not survive infancy um, as well
1: part of this indomitable spirit and uh, i think her descendants are proud of this i think they would refer to this as a pioneer absolutely
2: pioneer absolutely they wear my antonia t-shirts <laughs> and uh where uh willa cather gave some gifts to anna pavelka and those still belong to the family and they absolutely claim this uh this story uh, in fact many people in the family have claimed Willa Cather's version of the story Mm -hmm. rather than the historical story. Mm, There's a famous scene where Jim Burden kills a rattlesnake and sort of saves him and Antonia. And that scene is Willa Cather's imagination. (laughs) It's a fairy tale kind of scene. It didn't really happen. But the family tells the story as if it really
1: happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a couple minutes left. Evelyn Fonda, I wondered... um just the brief version of this, you, whether you feel that this story is sort of, if there are any through points, uh, through themes from My Antonia and Anna Pavelka to your parents' story, which is also an immigrant story and a pioneer story.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, Cather once said that there are two or three stories that keep going round and round, and it it's really hard not to read My Antonia in 2018 and not feel like that's a story that's going round and round.
1: Mm-hmm. I think we have time just to one more passage, Steve Shively. Uh, maybe you could uh, read the one called Miracle. Sure. At the very end
2: of the novel, Jim Burden has been away for twenty over 20 years, and then finally uh it takes some courage to go back and see her and many of us can relate to people oh i'd kind of like to see so and so again but maybe it wouldn't go so well and uh if i can find the passage here
1: um i think this is a passage but a minute or less right so I'll we abbreviate have about a minute. It. okay um
2: jim says uh before i could sit in the chair the miracle happened. One of those quiet moments that clutch the heart and take more courage than the noisy excited passages in life. And Antonia appears uh, in front of him and she is an old grizzled um, woman uh, and he comes to see very quickly that she is battered but not diminished and she still has her full identity. And uh, if, if anything, it's stronger. And she was there in the full vigor of her personality, battered but not diminished. Mm. And I love the notion that that is what a miracle is, mm-hmm. uh, that a miracle can involve a woman who has lived a very hard life.
1: Good place to end the conversation. We've been talking about Willa Cather's My Antonia 100 years now after the uh, after the publication. Uh, we've been talking with Cather scholars, USU professors Evelyn Fonda and Steve Shively. Thanks to both of you for coming in.
3: Thanks so
0: much. Enjoyed
1: it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
0: This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.
3: Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines.
1: A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and kusu Logan.
3: Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio.
1: I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.